Okay, so let's um, let's make a start. Let's read Daniel chapter nine. Um, if we do a couple of verses each, and uh, I'll start, and then Beck, and then uh, and then Lil, and we'll go around. So Daniel chapter nine. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, at the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces is at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel that are near and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespasses that they trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we've sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words, which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us, by bringing upon us a great evil, for under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us. Yet have we not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understanding thy truth. Therefore the Lord watched upon us the evil and brought it upon us. The Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast forgotten thee renowned, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thy anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore... O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary, that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes, and behold our desolations in the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee, for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening ablation. 
and he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Okay, well, thank you, guys. Um, so let's, uh, let's begin. It's a big chapter, um, and uh, there's some tough verses, uh, particularly towards the end of the chapter, and, uh, you know, it's, not, it's, not, it's uh, not easy, certainly not for me anyway. Um, so let's um, just begin by noting that this is taking place in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. Now, what other chapter in Daniel took place in the first year of Darius? And you could argue, well, I don't know for sure, and that's a you know pretty reasonable th thing to argue, okay? But just have a guess, think about it. Chapter six. Chapter six, why chapter six? Darius. Because Darius, yeah? Because you read about Darius. And the reason isn't it? Because Daniel 5, we come to the end of Babylon. Daniel 6, we read of Darius and what Darius does in putting Daniel in charge. And of course, he's in charge before long. The presidents and the princes are jealous of him. But what is Daniel 6 renowned for that Daniel does three times a day? Pray. Prayer, right? So, so in, in the beginning of Darius's reign, this man is known as a man of prayer. Three times a day, you know, he, he continues to pray, doesn't he? Even when he's in the lion's den, okay? So Daniel 9, I think we're given this detail, um, not only because, you know, we're shown that, you know, when these visions took place, but this prayer, really, I think it's the prayer that Daniel has been praying year on year, but particularly now at this time, because the Babylonian captivity is up. Babylon has fallen. And so now he knows that it's the time for the people to be able to return. They're going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. And so the man of prayer that we see in Daniel 6, in the, in the reign of Darius, is the man, is the prayer that we're now seeing, I think, in Daniel chapter 9. All right. 
So perhaps the first thing for us to note is, you know, Daniel 6 next to chapter 9, because we can very easily, can't we, forget that these things um, are connected up. Um, and we can see each chapter as sort of being something that sets up, stands apart. And, you know, we, we don't very often read Daniel 6 to Daniel 9. And so we perhaps don't make the connection. So I think it's important we make that connection. So verse two, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books. The word books is, is the word scroll. So he's got the scrolls. Um, the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. So he's got Jeremiah's scrolls, hasn't he? Um, he's got a copy of these scrolls um, that enables him, as he's studying these scrolls, to see, the end of verse 2, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he knows from Jeremiah's scroll that the 70 years is up. So where's he going to go to in Jeremiah's scroll to know the 70 years is up? So have a look at our margins. And it almost certainly tell you in the margin, Jeremiah 25. OK, so let's make a note of that or circle it in the margin. Jeremiah 25 and verse 12. So let's just go there. Keep a marker in Daniel. It's our key chapter, isn't it, this week? Daniel 9. Jeremiah 25 and verse 12, where we read, we notice a couple of things that in Jeremiah 25, a key word that God says about the people is that they have not, look at the end of verse 3. Hearken. The end of verse 4, you've not hearkened nor inclined your ear verse seven you have not hearkened. so the people in the time of jeremiah told you've not listened you've not listened what's the hebrew word for listen hearkening yeah, okay yeah that was the hebrew word there's the short shawma okay so they've not hearkened they've not obeyed that i'm getting the over there um they've not hearkened they've not obeyed in the hebrew the word hearken to listen is the same as the word obey all right now it's important because it's such a significant word in daniel chapter 9 in daniel's prayer that hebrew word is used on seven occasions i'm not going to go through them all now don't have the time this evening but you can do that in your time you can study them through but but what daniel is going to pray is that although they've not hearkened they now are ready to listen. They're ready to obey. Okay. So and that because they've not hearkened, Jeremiah goes on to say, verse 12, it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished, I will punish the king of Babylon. So they're going to go into captivity because they've not listened. But after 70 years, the king of Babylon would be punished. And that nation said the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans will I make it perpetual desolations. So the time is up. Now, another important reference is Jeremiah 29. So come to Jeremiah 29, where we read in verse 10, for thus says Yahweh, after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon. So now Jeremiah 25 was saying there'll be 70 years, but Jeremiah 29 tells us what's going to happen after 70 years. I will visit you. And before my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So what what's Daniel's prayer? 
His prayer is that they're going to be able to return to this place, to Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith Yahweh, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken to you. So what's the word that's used again and again in Daniel 9? The word hearken. And you shall seek me and find me. And when you shall search for me, when you shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith Yahweh, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I've driven you, saith Yahweh, and I will bring you again to the place which I caused you to be carried away captive. And so how have they got to pray? They've got to pray. When you seek me, you'll find me. When you search for me, with all your heart. with all your heart and so what we see now is daniel's prayer a prayer with all his heart here is a man who can see the problem of sin and all its consequences laid bare before him he's watched the system of babylon the symbol of sin in scripture devour his people he's seen so many that are now comfortable that aren't in the least interested in going back in going back to the land and so he knows so well the problem of iniquity transgression and sin and he comes to his god in prayer so what does it say just note in jeremiah 29 verse 13 ye shall seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart and so what do we read verse 3 of daniel chapter 9 i set my face unto the lord god to seek all right so next the word seek we put jeremiah 29 and verse 13 jeremiah 29 13 i set my face the lord god to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes this is a man praying with all his heart, isn't it? And I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and that keep his commandments. So keeping the covenant, I want you to, to make a note of Deuteronomy chapter four. Let me turn to Deuteronomy four couple of references I'd like to show you in Deuteronomy 4. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read, we've been here before, you remember when we looked at Daniel 3 and the fiery furnace just for reference verse 24 the lord thy god is a consuming fire you remember that but deuteronomy 4 went on to say what they should do verse 27 the lord your god will scatter you among the people you shall be left few in number among the heathen where the lord shall lead you and there you'll serve god the work of men's hands wood stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell but now look at this verse 29 if from thence you will seek yahweh your god you will find him 
if you seek him with what? With all your heart and with all your soul. And so the prayer of Daniel in Daniel 9 and verse 4, we make a note, Deuteronomy 4 verse 29, because he's seeking with all his heart. And so what does it go on to say? Verse 30. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and thou be obedient to his voice. Now let's start to notice these words in Deuteronomy 4. Verse, the end of verse 28. Nor hear. Verse 30. Thou shalt be obedient. The end of verse 32. Hath been heard. Verse 33. Did ever people hear? The end of verse 33. Heard. Verse 36 twice in the verse so do you see that in this point of scripture we see seven occasions where we have this same hebrew word so deuteronomy 4 is saying you've got to hear and be obedient to the voice of the lord your god okay so what do we read verse 31 for yahweh your god is a merciful god he won't forsake thee neither destroy thee nor forget the covenant. I'll go back to Daniel 5, Daniel 9 rather. I prayed, verse 4, to Yahweh my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to those that love him and to them that keep his commandments. And so Daniel's prayer He's drawing on, he's picking up, he's read the prophet Jeremiah, but he knows very well the law of Moses. Just notice verse 11, the law of Moses, verse 13, as it's written in the law of Moses. He knows the law of Moses. I'm sure he'd have the scrolls of the law. And he knows very well that Deuteronomy 4 says you've got to seek the Lord thy God and find him and seek him with all your heart and with all your soul and so that's the prayer that we're seeing now and so then we've noticed don't we that as Daniel is praying verse 4 I prayed verse 3 I set my face verse 2 I Daniel understood but now we know what happens verse 5 we have sinned Verse six, neither have we hearkened. And so all the way through this prayer now, we see that it's about Daniel and the people. There's nothing on the scriptural record written bad about Daniel. Clearly he sinned like all men sin. But this man recognized that the problem of sin wasn't about just individual sinning. It was deep within them all. We have sinned. And so his prayer is seeking for the solution to the problem of sin. That's what Daniel wants. That's why he wants to go back to Jerusalem. He wants the temple to be rebuilt because he knows if the temple is rebuilt, what are, they able to, what are the people able to bring? sacrifices and what are sacrifices used for in the law of moses forgiveness of sin is to take away sin he's going to learn there's something far more wonderful laid out in the plan and purpose of god 
than it, that's going to require the temple. But that's what this man of faith is seeking for. He's seeking for the forgiveness of sins. And so we're interested to see the way this little passage is structured here. So we see verse four, Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy. Okay. And now I want you to compare that to verse nine. So this is um, uh, a chiastic structure. It's inverted parallel um, uh, structure that was probably showed to me by brother Stephen Palmer, but I don't want to give him credit in case, just in case it wasn't, it was someone else or, or he might look at it and think, Pete, you haven't got it quite right. But uh, he's certainly the one that's got us in our, in our meeting mumbles ecclesia, really looking at the structure of passages. So just look at this because it's really lovely, I think. So we see in verse four, and what I do is I put in my margin an A, because uh, I know that's the beginning of the structure. So we see this word mercy, keeping covenant and mercy. And I want you to go down to verse nine, where it says, to the Lord our God belong mercies. All right, so that's our two bookends, like my A. I have one A, just like that, another one A with a little line after it, okay? Like an apostrophe in the air. Okay, so the next section, verse five, we have sinned and committed iniquity. So what do you read at the end of verse eight? See if I can get Beck or Lil to tell me at the end of verse eight, what does it say? We have sinned against thee. All right, so you see that you see the structure there. So then in verse six, we read, neither we hearken to thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. Then have a look at verse eight. Who do you read about? Kings and princes and fathers. You're right. So you see the kings and princes and fathers. So I've got a C next to those two sections. And then verse seven, it re reads, O Lord, righteousness belongs to thee, but to us, confusion of faces. What does it say at the beginning of verse eight? Confusion of faces. O Lord, to us belongs confusion of faces, right? So do you see, can, it, can you see that? Have you got those, that structure there? So what's in the middle then? Yeah, that's right. This all Israel. Yeah. So right at the heart of it is from sort of halfway through verse seven, the rest of verse seven that says to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel that are near and that are far off. So all the countries where thou hast driven them because of their trespasses, that they trespass against thee. So the problem of sin to all Israel. There's a problem of sin that is going to need to be dealt with. And it doesn't matter whether it's to them who are near or to them who are afar off. Now, can you think of another place in scripture where you read of those who are near and those who are far off? Yeah, good try, Beck. Yeah, so Ephesians, I was thinking. Go, go to Ephesians chapter two, where we read of the work of the one who's going to deal with sin. So obviously it was the, the father, God, but he sends his son, the Lord Jesus, to deal with the problem of sin. So what do we read? Verse 17. He came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which were nigh. Now, uh, in the case of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, 
the, we're talking about Jew and Gentile. And really, I, I wonder that even here, though it's talking of all Israel, to them who are far off, to all the countries, to those who are near, I wonder that there's the idea, even here in Daniel, of Jew and Gentile, that all um, have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So Ephesians 2.17 um, is a great reference, I think. We re then read on in verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, I just want you to note this because it, we're going to see it's important later on. The Apostle Paul, when he writes the Ephesians, goes on to say, Now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple. What does Daniel want? What's Daniel praying for? That they can go back and build the temple. But the, when the Apostle Paul writes the Ephesians, years later, of course, he says, what's, who's the temple? Us, right? He says to the Ephesians and to us, you are the temple, right? That what you've got to do is grow. You've got to make sure that the temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Lord Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, whom the whole building fitly framed together grows to the holy temple of the Lord, in whom ye also are building together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So I want you to notice that, that when the Apostle Paul writes the Ephesians, we follow that reference of uh, near and far off, it goes on to tell us that the temple is about people, okay? All right, come back to Daniel chapter 9. And we see in verse 11, I'm conscious already of time, uh, it's already caught past, we're going to say, we're going to just keep moving at a pace. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing they might not obey thy voice, therefore the curse is poured upon us. So what's the curse that's poured upon them? They're just making notes, so let's wait. So the curse that's poured upon us, what is the curse? Sin, the problem is sin, yeah? Genesis 3.15 the curse is poured upon us. Um, that's the nature of the problem of sin. It's, we transgress the law. The curse is poured upon us. All the things that the curse said would happen. But more specific than that, the curse is poured upon us and the oath written in the law of Moses. So where in the law of Moses do we read about the blessings or the cursings? Major chapter, isn't it? One that we all have to remember, Deuteronomy chapter 28. Okay, so make a note in your margin. The curse poured upon us, the oath written in the law of Moses, next to verse 11, Deuteronomy 28. And really, it's from verse 15 right the way through to the end of the chapter. So let me just, we're not going to read the whole chapter, it's huge. But it's a come to pass. What is, what is, notice what it says. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. It shall come to pass. If you will not, guess, hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do his commandments, his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And so then curse after curse after curse 
is written in Deuteronomy chapter 28, including they're told they'll be taken into captivity and everything that we've seen already um, in uh, Daniel's captivity in Babylon. All right. So are we okay, you guys? Are we up to sorted with our notes? All right. Beck, you're missing a note? What do you want? Didn't get the last one. Deuteronomy 28, 15. Next to verse 11. Got that one? All right. Let's um, let's jump on then. And I want you to note, I've already pointed this out to you already, the significance that he keeps saying, verse 11, the oath is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. Verse 13, he says, as it's written, the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us. Yet have we not our prayer before Yahweh our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore, hath Yahweh watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For Yahweh our God is righteous in all his works, which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. And this is really significant that God is righteous for what he is doing. All right. He is righteous. Now, let's make a note there of Deuteronomy 9. Go to verse 16 first of uh, Daniel 9. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away. So God is righteous. The fact that the people have been taken into captivity demonstrates God's righteousness. He's right. It's what he said would happen. Now, let's just make a note of Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verses 4 to 6. So Deuteronomy 9 verse 4 down to verse 6. Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee. So when they came into the land and the nations of the land that were there were cast out before him, before them. So don't you say, verse 4, this is for my righteousness that the Lord has brought me to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive thee out from before thee, not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart doth thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God hath drive them out from before thee, that he may perform the word which the Lord swear to thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God gives thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness. Now note this, the end of verse 6, for thou art a stiff-necked people. So it's not about your righteousness, because you are a stiff-necked people. Look, verse 13. Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. All right? Now, I want you to note that phrase. You'll need it a bit later on. All right? So it's not about their righteousness. In stark contrast, it's about God's righteousness. Now, while we're in Deuteronomy 7, I want you to notice, uh, Deuteronomy 9, I want you to notice uh, one other reference in Deuteronomy. Come back to chapter 7. Where in Deuteronomy 7, God warns them 
that if they don't keep his covenant with him, they're going to be in trouble. Verse 23, Yahweh your God will deliver them to thee and shall destroy them with great, and he shall deliver their kings to your hand. There'll, there'll be blessings to them if they listen, but if they don't, they're going to be in trouble. And so he says to them, verse 21, you don't need to be affrighted at the inhabitants of the land of Israel. You're not going to worry about when you go in to possess the land. Don't worry about the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, and so on. Don't worry about them. Because, what does it say? For the Lord thy God is among you, a mighty God and terrible. Mighty and terrible. Now come back to Daniel chapter 9. How did Daniel start his prayer? Verse four, O Lord, the great and dreadful God. That's the, the, the same idea here, isn't it? This idea of the mighty and terrible. Okay, so the great and dreadful, the terrible uh, God. Time won't allow us, but the, next to that great and dreadful, another reference to have is Nehemiah 1 and verse 5. Um, where Nehemiah at this point in history, or a little later on, obviously, um, is, is praised the great and dreadful God. He, uh, as they, they're so desperate, aren't they, to be able to return and to, to do the building work that they so faithfully do. Okay, come back to Daniel 9. Let's uh, see where we are now. So verse 16. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. So Daniel's prayer is that the people can go back to the city of Jerusalem, to the holy mountain. What's the holy mountain? Zion. Zion yeah, to go back to that place. Because for our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to all that are around about us. Now, therefore, O our God, Hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications. Cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that's desolate. What's the sanctuary that's desolate? The temple has been burned down. Cause thy face to shine on the sound of the temple that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Oh my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes, behold our desolations, the city which is called by thy name. We don't present our supplications before thee for our righteousness. He gets it, doesn't he? But for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people. So it's about the city. It's about the people. It's about the, 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 the sanctuary in the city about the temple because he's so desperate they can go back they can do the building work that the sacrifices can begin and that they can have the forgiveness of their sins as is written in the book of the law of Moses and so he asked doesn't he in his prayer cause thy face to shine upon us and that phrase is taken isn't it from the book of the law of Moses so let's turn to Numbers chapter 6. Keep a marker. We often sing these words, don't we, at someone's baptism. It's always lovely. It's moving, isn't it? 
We read in verse 22 that the Lord spake to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, On this wise you will bless the children of Israel, saying to them, Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face to shine on thee and be gracious to thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance on ye, on you, and give you peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And so God's name, they shall put his name on the children of Israel. And so that's why, look at the end of verse 19 of Daniel chapter 9. Thy people are called by thy name. So Daniel knows that he wants God to shine on them. But in number six, the prayer is not that God would shine on the sanctuary, the tabernacle. It's that God would shine on who? People. On people. Yahweh bless thee and keep thee, that Yahweh make his face to shine a face to shine on ye, on you, be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they'll put my name, Yahweh, on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. And so the name of God is on that people. And in Daniel's prayer, he says, cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that's desolate for the Lord's sake. He wants the people to have their sins forgiven, to have God's love and mercy, to be back in the land, in the city of Jerusalem, to be able to give praise to the God for whom, on whom they were named. So just keep those thoughts in our mind. And we notice that while he is speaking and praying and confessing his sins and the sins of his people Israel, and we notice that, that this speaking and praying and confessing his sins is important because we're going to be given a real significant number in a minute, aren't we? Uh, we're going to be given a number of 70 weeks, okay? Now, why is that important? Because we'll see in a minute. I'm not if I should show you this now in a minute. I'll show you now. Just keep a marker and come to Matthew 18. I think for most of you, this will make sense immediately. For some, we might need to look at a bit more. But when the question is asked by Peter from the disciples about the forgiveness of their sins, he says, Lord, Verse 21 of Matthew 18, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? And the Lord Jesus replies to him, I say to thee, Unt until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, why is 70 times seven important in the context of Daniel 9? 70 years. What a little, the 70 year prophecy and we're going to see that 70 times 7 is the key calculation for this prophecy. And that prophecy of Daniel 9 that Gabriel is about to show Daniel is all about how they're going to have their sins forgiven once and for all. So when we read in Daniel 9 verse 19, O oh Lord here, O oh Lord forgive, when the Peter asked the question, how, long, how often should I forgive, should it be seven times, the Lord's answer is, 
70 times seven. Now, clearly, he doesn't literally mean 70 times seven, which is what? Just out of interest. Do you check the maths in this house? 70 times seven. Oh, dear, Lils. 490. 490. Thank you, Lil. Eventually. 490, right? So, obviously, the Lord Jesus doesn't literally mean for 490 times, you know, he's, but, but why has he used that language? And I wonder that that language is used to refer the discerning reader back to Daniel 9, back to the 70 week prophecy, which is the key prophecy given to the Jewish people to talk them about when would be the time for the forgiveness of sins to come about. So Daniel's in the middle of prayer. He's praying this prayer. And I think that, uh, as I say, in Daniel 6, the three times a day prayer, you know, this is obviously a very specific one, but I'm sure that he's made prayers like this again and again and again, particularly at this time in the first year of Darius, when Babylon has fallen, he understands by way of looking at the scrolls of Jeremiah, the 70 years is up. And he's desperate for the solution of the problem of sin to be dealt with. And as he makes this prayer, while he's speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication for the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yea, verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. So this is perhaps one of his prayers, when he, when he gave one of his prayers at 3 p.m. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I'm now come to give thee skill and understanding. Now, I'm going to share my screen with you because I want to make sure that um, I don't leave off some of the notes that um, I've prepared um, in this class now. So Gabriel now comes to Daniel. I want you to notice that Gabriel now says to him, uh, he instructed and informed me and talked with me and said, Daniel, I'm come to give you skill and understanding. Now, that word skill is nearly always translated wisdom. I've come to give you wisdom and understanding. All right. So for Daniel's now going to be given the answer to how sin is going to be dealt with once and for all. And of course, it's not going to be, is it, in the solution of Ezra and Nehemiah and going back and doing the building, however marvellous that was, and it's a great type of what we will do in the kingdom age, of the building work, of the temple. But the solution to the problem of sins was not going to be the second temple. Far, far from it, as we shall see at the end of this 70-week prophecy. It was never going to be the second temple. That wasn't the case. The solution of sins, of course, is going to be in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So note this, I've come to give you wisdom and understanding. And we know Daniel is the wise man, isn't he? He is a wise man. He's been given additional wisdom and understanding. And so we go on to read that 70 weeks, I'm just going to take this a little further down here uh, to there. Sorry, guys. 70 weeks, we read, uh, 
are determined on your people, on your holy city, to do six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. So the problem of sin, iniquity, transgression, is going to be dealt with at the end of this 70-week period. And now three positive things. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and, and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So there are 70 weeks determined to do these six things. So we ask the question, well, what are this 70 weeks about? And we do the usual thing that we do when looking at uh, prophecy. We apply a key principle. What's the principle we apply? Day a day for a year. Where do we get references to help us with a day for a year? Numbers 14. Numbers 14, verse 34, key, key reference. And also in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 4, verse 5 and 6. All right, so key, key verses they are for a day for a year principle. So we can make a note of those. But when we then take a day for a year, our 70 weeks is suddenly many, many more uh, days, aren't there? So how many, uh, on years, how many days are there in a week? Seven. Seven. So... In a, in a one week, we've got how many years? Seven. Seven years. But how many weeks are there? 70. 70 weeks. So we have to do 70 times seven. All right? Now, that's the principle of Matthew 18, isn't it? Matthew 18, 21. 70 times seven. So 70 times seven, day for a year, is how? Lil's just on the math for us. 70 times seven? 490. So there are, this 70-week prophecy is a 490-year time period, okay? So when does it begin? Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, that's when the prophecy will begin. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. And that commandment we have in Ezra chapter 7. We won't turn there uh, for the sake of time. There's too much to get through. But Ezra 7 verse 11 um, through to 26, we see the decree of Artaxerxes that Jerusalem should be rebuilt. So from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now, let me make clear here that this isn't easy and this is our best efforts the there will be um many many other views of this even within the brotherhood there's different views on it so although i feel relatively strongly about this view i recognize that we ought not to be overly dogmatic and i should also pick up now's a good time to do so that last week when we looked at Daniel chapter 8 and we looked at the 2,300 year period and we did our usual day for a year, I suggested to you that that time period began in 333 BC and said to you, if you add 2,300, it comes to 1967. And someone got in touch with me, two people actually in the week, and pointed out that actually when you are... Uh, doing that you can't count zero as a year because it wasn't one so you go from minus one to one 
uh, AD, in which case you lose a year. So they're thinking on it, is it still, you still come to 1967, but really you ought to go back a year, uh, which is perfectly reasonable still. So instead of starting at BC 333, uh, you'd start at BC 334. All right. So a correction from last week, perhaps. But it goes to show, I hope, that actually um, these things aren't easy. You know, we're not looking at something that we just think, oh, right, let's read that. That's completely cracked and sorted. We're looking at something and, and doing our best to try to work it out. And that's what we're looking at now. In, in Daniel chapter nine, the, the, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem is reckoned to be about the year 456, 457 B.C. OK, we add our 490 years and we come to about A.D. 3-2, A.D. 3-3 or A.D. 3-3, A.D. 3-4. All right. And I'm going to suggest to you this evening that at that point in history, a key event took place, which is recorded in Acts chapter seven, which we'll we'll look at together shortly. So. We understand, don't we? We just read in verse 24, there are six things that are determined on thy people and on thy holy city. Now, this is really important, I think, for us to really grasp what the 70 weeks prophecy is telling us. It's not telling us about the Gentiles coming in. It's telling us it's, the focus is on thy people. It's on the Jewish people. The focus is on Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That's what the focus is. The 70 weeks are determined on them. So the Jewish people are being, this is their time of opportunity. They've got 70 weeks left. They've had since, haven't they, the time that they've come into the land and they've had the, the, the judges and then they've had the kings. That time is come to a close. They're not going to have a king any longer sit on the throne of Israel until he comes whose right it is. But they're now being told, but you've got this time period, 70 weeks, 490 years, for the Jewish people to get your house in order. Because at the end of this time period, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be sent. And he will be the one that finishes transgression. He makes an end of sin. He makes reconciliation for iniquity. He deals with the problem of sin. And the result of that is, is that everlasting righteousness is able to be brought in. And so the vision and the prophecy is sealed up in him. The word prophecy, I'm told, and I'm no scholar, as you know, um, the word prophecy in the Hebrew, I'm told, is in, the, is in the masculine form. So seal up the vision, the prophet. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was the prophet that the vision was about and to anoint the most holy. Well, when was the most holy anointed? When was the most holy anointed? If you're not too sure of this, I want to just keep a marker here and come to Acts 10, actually, to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we read in verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power so God anointed 
Jesus of Nazareth, when did God anoint him with the Holy Spirit? His baptism, right? So what happens at his baptism? The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. So this is really, really important now. And, you know, you've got to zone in. Because just go to the end of Daniel 9, where we read, he'll confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the middle of the week, he'll cause sacrifice and oblation to cease. So the covenant would be confirmed to the people for one week. And this is right at the end of the 70-year prophecy. We'll look at the timescales shortly. But right at the end of the 70-year prophecy, there'll be a covenant week. Okay? So verse 27, he'll confirm the covenant in many for one week. We call that the covenant week. And the covenant week began, how long did Jesus minister for? Go on a bit, go on. Three and a half years. And the ministry began with which great event? The anointing of the Lord Jesus, his baptism. His baptism. So I put on the screen there a slide that says, it came to pass, Mark 1, verse 9 to 11, that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized of John in Jordan, and straightway coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. So at the beginning of the covenant week, the heavens opened. Great event. And the spirit like a dove anointed the Lord Jesus Christ and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How long did the Lord Jesus minister for? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. What would that be in a week then? In our, in our day for a year principle. How many days are there in a week? Seven. So what's right in the middle of a week? <laughs> Lord has just said Wednesday. Oh, man. Oh, dear. So numerically, what is right in the... They've lost it. They've lost it. Look at the state of them. So right in the middle of a week, if, if a week you're telling me is seven days or, or prophetically seven years, what's numerically right in the middle of seven? Three and a half. Three and a half, right? So look, verse 27, he'll confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, he'll cause sacrifice and oblation to cease. So at the last week of the prophecy, in the middle of the week, sacrifice and oblation would cease. So three and a half years... The Lord Jesus prophesied in the middle of the week, the Lord Jesus was crucified and he rose again. And so the problem of sin was dealt with. The, he'll cause sacrifice and oblation to cease. What wouldn't they need to take anymore to the temple? Sacrifice, you don't need it anymore. Sin's been dealt with once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10. You remember when the Apostle Paul, we think, we're not too sure, are we? But when the Apostle Paul, I think, wrote to the Hebrews so much later, he's trying to convince them that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ has done it. He says to them, every priest stands daily ministering, offering uh, and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, when he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And so in the middle of the covenant week, sins were dealt with forever. Sacrifice and oblation was able 
to stop. And so the next question is then, well, what happens with the next three and a half years? If it was in the middle of the last week that sacrifice was stopped because the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the problem of sin, there's still three and a half years left. It was the middle of the last week of the prophecy. What happens in that time? And I want us to look at that now. I think the end of it we see in Acts 7, where the heavens are opened again. All right. And that, let me show you. Let me put some uh, slides on the screen. This looks pretty awful, doesn't it? Um, you look at this and it makes you feel ill. You think, how can I work this out? But really, all this is showing us. Took a while to put together, but it's trying to show us the breakdown of what we see in Daniel 9. So are you still in Daniel 9? We, we, you see in verse 25 that the 70 weeks are broken up into three time periods. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Okay, that's good. So that's when it's going to begin from the going forth of the commandment, Ezra 7, verse 11 to 26. That unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks. So you first got a period, first of seven weeks. Seven weeks prophetically, if you take in one week, there are seven years. Seven weeks, what's seven times seven? Seven times seven, 49. So the first is 49 years. And so we go four, five, seven, we add 49 years. We come to 408 and Jerusalem is uh, being rebuilt, okay? They're, they're returning and building Jerusalem um, and, and it's rebuilt, okay? So that's the first 49 years. What have we got next? And three score and two weeks. So what's three score and two weeks? 62 weeks, yeah? 62 weeks is the next time period. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So we, we then add another 62 weeks. And after another 62 weeks, we come to the year 26, 27 AD. All right. Now, why is this so important? Because this now brings us to the beginning of the covenant week. So we add on our seven years, we add on our, uh, or, or our seven weeks rather, we add on our 62 weeks. So seven weeks is 49 years, 62 weeks is 434 years. We add it up and we come to about 26 AD. Now you might say, well, hold on a second. The Lord Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry. Why would it be 26 AD? Why, why would that be the case? What do we know about the calendar? It's not right. So what year was the Lord Jesus born? Before, right, well done. So something like 4 BC, all right? So that's why the dates work, okay? And so we come to 26 AD, at the end of the 62 weeks, and the Lord Jesus begins his ministry. It's the beginning of the covenant week. But we're told, um, that um, verse 26, after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, not for himself. Um, when it says not for himself, it's not because the Lord Jesus didn't benefit from his sacrifice. Of course, the Lord Jesus benefited from his sacrifice. But it, it wasn't because of the fact that um, he himself 
was uh, continually sinning. Just let, just grab me um, uh, book here. Let me just read you what the Septuagint has to say um, for that phrase. It says, "There is no condemnation in him." In other, all right. So so when it says not for himself, the Septuagint says. There's no condemnation in him. The Lord Jesus, of course, did nothing wrong. You know, we've got to be careful, our understanding of the atonement, of course the Lord Jesus benefited from his sacrifice. Um, but it, it wasn't because of his own sin, in sins that he did, although, of course, um, uh, he had exactly the same sinful nature that you and I have. So, be not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and his end shall be with a flood so the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed and his end will be with a flood when would the city and the sanctuary be destroyed the romans what's the key date ad 70 so we've got this nightmare that the 70 week prophecy talks about ad 70 being the, the, the sort of close of it all. And yet we know, don't we, that although the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with the problem of sin in the middle of the covenant week, at the end, it wasn't three and a half years later, after the Lord Jesus had risen up to heaven, it wasn't three and a half years later that the city and the sanctuary were destroyed. It was not until AD 70, we're talking about another 37 years later um, uh, or, or, or 40 years later, another generation later from the middle of the covenant week. So what's happening? What, what's happening here that we can sort of try to work out and understand? Well, let me just put on the screen here. There are varying views on this 70 week prophecy. I ought to acknowledge them before sort of steaming on. Some think that the three and a half year time period moves into the future so in the middle of the covenant week the lord jesus deals with the problem of sin you've got three and a half years left and so that moves into the future i don't think that's right i think that if you take a view like that what sense is it a time period you know you know if, if you suddenly just drifted off into the future um uh, the, the the word midst in the hebrew is the is the hebrew word hetzi which means half so for some people, they think that the, the covenant week, it just means the second half of the covenant week. That's when the Lord Jesus dealt with the problem of sin. Uh, but I think that then it's a challenge to find the right date at the beginning for the start. Some people believe that the 70 week comes to a close at the time of Acts chapter 10. In fact, that's a very traditional uh, Christadelphian view because... Who was the angel that came, Gabriel? What time did he come? 3 p.m. 3 p.m. And in Acts chapter 10, you might remember that the angel comes to Cornelius. And we see, oh, the angel comes to Peter, rather, apologies. And we see that Cornelius is praying. It's about the ninth hour of the day. So uh, th th there's lots of connections in Acts 10 that we see to Daniel chapter 9. 
And people like that because in Acts 10, we see the gospel no longer going to the Jews, but going to the Gentiles, which, of course, is naturally going to happen at the end of the 70-week prophecy. 70 weeks are determined upon you and on your people, all right, and on the city of Jerusalem. But I think the focus is on the Jews and on the people of the Jews. So I'm going to suggest to you that the answer for the end of the 70-week prophecy is the 70 weeks closes at the time of the death of Stephen. And let me show you that um, now. It still doesn't answer, though, because Stephen, we believe, was in about AD 33, at this time period that we're talking about, at the end of the 70-week prophecy. But we're still a bit stuck because that wasn't when the the city would be destroyed and the sanctuary, the, the flood of the Romans would come in and destroy it. That, that didn't happen then. So what happened? Well, I think we see the most remarkable period of grace. Remember that in 2 Peter chapter 3, we read, the Lord is not, is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. So how is that shown in God's long-suffering and graciousness? Do you remember when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians? Just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I know this is challenging at the moment, but I think you'll see in a minute that quite a few of our thoughts are going to come together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Lord, the, the, the Apostle Paul, rather, says to the Corinthian Ecclesia in verse 8, Last of all, he, Jesus, was seen by me also as of one born out of due time. Now, that word born out of due time is only used here, and it's literally like the idea of an abortion, aborted out of due time. So, so what is, what was due time? What was, what was due time? Well, not, the, the, the due time for the Jewish people was the end of the 70-week prophecy. So at the end of the 70-week prophecy, time, if you like, was up. But the Apostle Paul was born out of due time. So something happens that brings the Apostle Paul onto the scene, born out of due time. And he talks about how he persecuted the Ecclesia of God. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So the Apostle Paul recognized, he's inspired to say that he was born, he was almost aborted, as it were, in, 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 in being born out of due time. Time was up, but the Apostle Paul was sent in order for a very special work to be done. So you tell me, when do we first come across the Apostle Paul? Acts chapter 7. So come to Acts chapter 7. Perhaps got a marker in Daniel 9. In Acts chapter 7, we come across the one who's born out of due time. Acts chapter 7, the end of verse 58, 
When Stephen is stoned, they laid their clothes at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death. And now in chapter 8, the gospel, what does Saul do? Verse 3, as for Saul, he laid havoc of the ecclesia, entering into every house, hailing men and women, committing them to prison. So what happened? Verse 4. Therefore, they were scattered abroad. They went everywhere, preaching the word. So the word, because of the work of Saul, is scattered abroad. It goes everywhere because people are running from him to get out of Jerusalem, to get out of that place and uh, his persecutions. Of course, when we come to Acts chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul and we then see his great ministry and work through the rest of um, the, the New Testament. So Paul is the one born out of due time. Due time. Things should have come to a close in AD 33, 34, the end of the 70 week period. But by the grace of God, who's not slack concerning his promise, but his long suffering, more time was given, even in the 70 week period. By rights, the temple could have been destroyed in the year, as it were, AD 33, 34, at the end of the covenant week. But God, in his loving kindness, kept giving them time that Paul and others could preach them and say to them, it's not about this temple. It never was. You don't need to worry about bringing sacrifices. When Paul writes to the Hebrews, he's pleading with them, isn't he? You can't keep bringing these sacrifices year by year. They're never going to take away sins. It's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who once and for all time dealt with the problem of sin. The problem that Daniel was praying for in Daniel chapter 9. So you'll be interested to know if you're in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 6, that we see real connections between... Daniel's prayer and what's happening with Daniel and Stephen. So I want you to look carefully here. I've put them on the screen here. In Acts chapter 6, we see that they cho chose Stephen, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? So Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, we read, uh, verse six, when they set before the apostles, uh, whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid their hands on them. Now, in Daniel nine, do you remember what was Daniel doing? He was, what's Daniel doing in Daniel nine? Praying, and what happens? Gabriel comes and touches him. Now, you look that word up in the Hebrew; it means he put his hands on him. All right, so we've got these connections. What else do we notice? What's, what's Stephen like as a person? Well, in Acts 6, verse 10, we're told they weren't able to, to, to withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. What did Gabriel give to Daniel? I've come to give you wisdom and understanding. All right. So if you're back in Daniel 9, we might start making these notes of Acts 6, 5 and 6. Acts 6, verse 10. So those are saying to me, Daniel 9, verse what? So let's just turn back there. Daniel 9, 
And here we go. Let me give it to you now. So verse 21, he's praying and he, it says he touched him. All right. So that we might put next to Daniel 9, 21, Acts 6, 5 and 6. Or in verse 22, he instruct, informed me and taught with me and said, Daniel, I'm come to give thee skill, or that word skill is the word wisdom. wisdom. So we might put next to that, Acts 6, verse 10. Okay. Now, in Acts chapter 6, they're furious with Stephen. Why? Now, let's see why they're furious with Stephen in Acts chapter 6. So whatever Stephen's saying, he's full of the wisdom of the Spirit. So he's telling, speaking the truth to them, of course, isn't he? So what do they do, verse 11? Then they suborn men which said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against who? Against Moses and against God. Now, who did Daniel refer to in his prayer on a couple of occasions? Moses, right? And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses and said, this man speaks not to, uh, seeks, ceases rather, not to speak blasphemous words against two things. What are they? Two things. Against this, Acts 6, verse 13, he seeks not to, he ceases not to speak blasphemous words against what? This holy, place. this holy place. What's the holy place? The temple and the law. What's Daniel referred to? Moses. Law of Moses, the law of Moses, right? So Daniel has said that the law of Moses demonstrates the problem of sin. And of course, the law was a schoolmaster, the Apostle Paul wrote later to the great Galatians, to bring us to Christ. The whole point of the law was to demonstrate the problem of sin. That's why Daniel knew that they were in such trouble. Because the law was showing them the problem of sin. But these people in the time of Stephen, who should know better because the Lord has already come in the middle of the covenant week three and a half years ago, are now furious with Stephen because he's telling them that they don't need what? At the end of verse 13, they don't need any more the, the temple. They don't need sacrifices. Yeah. They don't need to follow the, the law. So it says, verse, Acts 6, verse 14, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Well, Jesus was going to destroy the place. When would Jesus come through the Romans to destroy that place? AD 70. And would change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looked steadfast on him, and they saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So what happens to Stephen's face? Shines. Starts to shine. Why is that significant? In the law of Moses, what did God say? That, that where should the shining, as it were, be? Numbers chapter 6, do you remember? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon 
you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. So the Lord's countenance was to shine on you, on people. So they're looking at Stephen and the they're, they're thinking, what is happening? His face looks like the face of an angel. It's shining. Daniel's prayer had been that God might shine on the sanctuary. But the sanctuary isn't required any longer. The holy place is not needed. What When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said to them, who's the temple? Yeah. You're the temple. The Apostle Paul is going to have to explain that, isn't he? Some years after Acts chapter 7. And so in Stephen, they see the man in front of them with his face shining who should be telling them that God doesn't want a temple made with hands. God wants a people who will come to love him with all their heart. And so we haven't got time to go through Acts 7, obviously, but come to the end of Stephen's speech, where Stephen draws his remarks to a close. And he says, verse 48, verse 47, Solomon built him a house. But the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands. As says the prophet, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Lord? The Lord wants us to build the house. What a blessing that we live in the days, that we haven't got the worry of trying to bring sacrifices to the temple. But we are challenged. What house will you build? What house will I build? Will we keep building on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? With the Lord Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so look what he says, verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Do you remember in Deuteronomy, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 about the stiff-necked people who didn't recognize or who needed to recognize that it wasn't of their righteousness. And that's what the people of Israel had turned it into. It was about their righteousness as they brought their sacrifices, as they tried to do every aspect of the law to say they had done it. They thought it was about their righteousness. It was never about their righteousness. The law, if they looked at it, probably was telling them that. So he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. What were they asked to do in Daniel 9? They had to keep, the, the, the key word in Daniel 9, they had to hearken. You're un, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. You remember that Jeremiah had said that they got to turn with all their heart. Deuteronomy said, you've got to turn with all your heart and ears. You've got to listen and obey. But they, the people, the Jewish people, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And so, which the prophets have not your fathers persecuted and have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, whom you've now become the betrayers and murderers, who've received the law by the disposition of angels. Daniel 9 and verse 6. Daniel said, neither have we hearkened to thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our 
fathers, which the prophets have not your fathers persecuted, have slain them which showed before of the coming of the righteous one. And so now what happens? They run at Stephen, but he being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly to heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, behold, I see heavens opened. And this is what I think, this I believe, is the, now the end of the covenant week. The heavens are opened. It happens again, of course, in Acts 10, when the heavens are opened again. And I think that possibly Acts 7 here and Acts 10 are the same year. Um, uh, I think it's perfectly reasonable that that's the case. Um, that the heavens open and now the time comes to a close for the Jewish people. We see that they stone Stephen. And as a result of this, in Acts chapter 8, we see, don't we, the gospel going out to the Gentiles. Now, let me just give you just a, a couple of more references. I want you to come to Ecclesiastes 8. Because in Ecclesiastes 8, just one verse I want you to notice, we read a lovely phrase about the wise man. Stephen was a man full of wisdom daniel was a wise man we know daniel was a wise man he set the legacy for the wise men come to ecclesiastes chapter 8 what do we read about the wise man ecclesiastes chapter 8 who is as the wise man who knows the interpretation of a thing a man's wisdom makes his face to shine and the boldness of his face shall be changed and so what i think we're shown in stephen is the wise man he is the one who gives the jewish people the last speech to them in jerusalem but tragically he's cast out of the city and stoned in the most terrible way and so the 70 week period comes by rights to a close. But what do wise men do? If we ask children this, really young children, what do wise men do? Wise men build their house on a rock. What does Stephen challenge us? What, what does Stephen say? What? House what house will you build me? What, Daniel, what was Daniel praying? He was praying that they could go back to build the house because he thought the house was the solution for the forgiveness of sins. And Gabriel says, it's not the house. It was never the house. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Messiah is going to come. He's going to deal with the problem of sins. Daniel, let me give you wisdom. I want you to be as a wise man. And Stephen shows the people what wise men do. Wise men build their house on a rock. Where do we read about that? Matthew chapter 7. Come, last reference, Matthew chapter 7. You see, this is no simple Sunday school story. I think this is... A remarkable story that's a warning to the Jews by the Lord Jesus Christ.
So, verse 24. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, so hears and does, that's the key message, isn't it? I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. What house will you build me? Build your house on a rock, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Lord Jesus in Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the rock. The wise man builds his house on the rock. And the rain descends and the floods came. Where do we read where have we read of floods in Daniel? At the end, well done, Daniel 9, verse 26. They shall come and they'll destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who's this? Who's going to destroy the city and the sanctuary? What year? Romans AD 70. The end will be like a will be with a flood. The rains came though, the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on that house, and it didn't fall. The wise people got out of Jerusalem. They listened to the words of the Lord Jesus. They were as wise men. They built their house on the rock. They got out of which city? Jerusalem. It wasn't about the city. It wasn't about the temple. So they got out of it because they built their house on the rock, on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the floods of the Romans came crashing in, they were okay. And so he goes on to say, everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not will be like a foolish man, which built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now, that word fall in the Greek is just the same word as the word in Luke 21, when the Lord Jesus Christ says to the disciples on the Mount of Olives, you don't need to go there, I'll go there for you. In Luke 21, verse 24, he says of the Jews, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They'll be led away captive to all nations and Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, which we have seen already. And we saw particularly in 1967, which was the end of the 2300 year prophecy of Daniel chapter eight. So just come back to Daniel nine. Let's just draw our thoughts together, because this is simply remarkable. I think that the 70 week prophecy, however complex it is, it seems to bring us to the middle of the covenant week, the last week of the prophecy, when in the middle of that week, the Lord Jesus Christ was sent to deal with the problem of sin. At the end of that covenant week, the time of Stephen, we see the wise man. What house will you build me, God said. It's never about a temple made with hands. I'm not going to any longer shine on the sanctuary. I want my glory on people. I want it on you. And in Stephen, they could see his face shining and they should have had the understanding of the law of Moses to know what number six told them, to know what Daniel nine told them and to recognize that therefore God wasn't going to keep this place, this law, that those things were to be done away with. And brothers and sisters, young people, when we reflect on these things, surely 
time is up. The time of the Gentiles has come to a close. We wonder, don't we, why has the Lord not come? Israel are back in the land. In 1967, they retook Jerusalem. What, what's left? We live in the days of Noah. We see the king of the north prepared. Well, this is our time of grace. And so let's use it wisely and build our house on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ.